You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In a moment, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 15. We are nearing the end now of our journey through the Apostle Paul's second inspired letter to the church that was meeting in the city of Corinth. And last week, we completed chapter 10, in which Paul laid out things that matter and things that don't matter. I hope that that was a help to you as as a we learned to apply those truths to our lives as truth is applicable regardless of the context in which it is delivered. And the context of that powerful list of truths was the apostles addressing um, some issues with men that were creeping into the church and projecting authority that wasn't theirs. We, we remain in that context this morning and we'll notice some other concerns that Paul has about these particular men. And as we were reviewing this context over the last two weeks, we saw that these usurpers of God's ordained authority had personally attacked the Apostle Paul. And, quite frankly, that's exactly what you would expect. Because people who are doing the wrong thing are almost always obsessed with criticizing others, right? (laughs) And so, they put a bullseye on the Apostle Paul, the one guy that was doing the right thing, and uh, constantly criticized him. In this case, the wolves in sheep's clothing that were troubling the Corinthian church had developed a line of criticism against the Apostle Paul that was just devastating for him. I I know we like to say, um, you know, in response to people criticizing you, oh, I don't care what people say about me. That means you're a liar, by the way. (laughs) I like to lean into the mic for emphasis, even if it's not on. Um, <laughs> of course we care. The Apostle Paul isn't, doesn't hide the fact that it does, he, he does care about it. Paul was a man who, um, he had some history. He lived tortured by his past self. You can see it in all his writings. He constantly bemoaned the fact that he had done so much damage to the cause of Christ in his earlier years. But he was at peace with his present self. He knew that he was pure of motive. He knew that he was desirous of nothing but God's glory and the spiritual health of God's people. And he was willing to spend and be spent for the furtherance of the gospel. And if that took him to prison, or if that robbed him of the comforts or the luxuries of life, he was willing to pay that price. All that mattered was serving the Lord. Christ mattered above all. He counted, to use his own words, he counted all things but done just to win Christ. 
It mattered not that Paul suffered. As a matter of fact, suffering was a privilege which Paul relished. Uh, Not that he liked the suffering, but he liked the fact that as Christ had suffered for him, he he was given the opportunity to identify with Christ through suffering. And what greater joy than to return, even if in a, in a minuscule part, that gift to Jesus. And it meant the world to him. That everyone knew how much he loved his Lord. And it meant the world to the Apostle Paul that everyone knew the purity of his motives. Especially important to the Apostle Paul was the people to whom God had sent him to minister. You can see that love expressed in all of his letters. He wanted them to know how much he loved them. He wanted them to know how much he loved Jesus. He wanted them to know and believe that he was pure of motive and that he was sold out for God and interested only in their benefit and God's glory. Paul had invested much into them. And he was protective of them. He doesn't want to see them fall for the deceivers. He doesn't want to see them miss the blessing of living the way God had ordained for them to live. He wants the best for them. And, and this protectiveness and fondness sometimes come out, come, comes out, there's irony in this sentence, in an almost awkward way. For this very reason, Paul begins our text with an admission that his wording might sound a little foolish. Nevertheless, that what he says is wholly true and profitable, even if it gets a little sappy in places. And we'll see this again next week, Paul actually apologizing for how he sounds, but holding firm to what he claims. Let's see how all of this fleshes out in our text today. We're just going to read verses 1 through 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning with verse 1. Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly. And indeed, bear with me. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband. That I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For he that cometh preacheth another, for if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, Or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, you might well bear with him. And I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that ye might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? I robbed other churches. 
taking wages of them to do you service. And I was, and when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you. And so will I keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Wherefore, because I love you not, God knoweth. But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion. That wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for how clear the Apostle Paul is in this letter to the Corinthians. Help us, Lord, to learn from this warning that he is giving. Help us, Lord, to apply it into our own lives that we might gain discernment, that we might be wary, as we should be. That we might glorify you with every aspect of our lives. God, if there's someone here today that hasn't yet entered um, the family of Christ, hasn't been born into your family, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts and draw them to that point that they might accept Christ as their Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I, uh, when I read the, the opening words of this passage, I almost laugh out loud. Paul's plea, that, read that again with me, it says, Would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly. I mean, <laughs> Paul's plea that the reader might just bear with them a little bit while he gets a little emotional about them, just rings true in my own heart. Because I, I know the feeling of, of uh, uh, needing to issue a caveat before reading a prepared statement. <laughs> I think maybe sometimes I issue too many caveats, so many that you forget what I'm, I've said. But um, <laughs> it's just how my mind works. But, but I, I get this. I understand what the Apostle Paul is going through here. Because so often what comes from my heart and what I know is profitable to be communicated seems like it might be misunderstood or thought of as a little silly sounding. And, and when, we, when we read verse 2, we see exactly why Paul starts the way he did. You see verse 2, For I am a, I'm jealous over you. Right? I mean, admitting a feeling of jealousy is always just a little bit awkward. It is. However awkward it may be to admit, jealousy is not always wrong. I think it's important we can make a, a little definition here. People often confuse jealousy with envy. 
Remember the difference between jealousy and envy. Envy, let's define envy first. That's the bad one. Envy is wanting something or someone over which or over whom someone else has a valid claim. Okay? Envy is wanting someone or something that belongs to someone else. That's envy. We are specifically commanded not to covet things that belong to someone else. It's not a sin to want to have something like someone else has. But to want for what is in their possession to be in your possession. That's envy. That's a sin. That's different than jealousy. Jealousy is a feeling or a fear of of someone over whom you have a valid claim of exclusivity being taken or seduced by someone who does not have that claim. Well, envy is always a sin because it's a sinful desire to want something that belongs to someone else. Jealousy is rooted in a desire to keep something or to keep someone that's rightfully yours. The problem with jealousy in humans, it's great in God because he always gets it right. The problem with jealousy in humans is that we're often wrong about the risk of losing what is ours. We make, you know, we misunderstand stuff. We think something's at risk when it's not actually at risk. So those feelings are misplaced feelings. They're they're just wrong. An example would be something like this. I'm driving down the road my work truck, working. And I see my wife sitting in a, in a vehicle with a good-looking dude with lots of hair. <laughs> and immediately I assume the worst. And I'm not talking about Christian. And, and immediately I just assume the worst. Oh, man, she fell for the hair. (laughs) You know. And and I get jealous. Now, there's a backstory to everything. And understand this, you don't ever see the whole picture. What what really happened, and just so that you know, this didn't really happen. Actually, I kind of hope it did, but I'm pretty sure it didn't. Now, what really happened is that she met a guy at work that said he had an old collectible book. She arranges, she arranges to meet with him, and of course, because it's windy outside, um, she looks at the book inside the car to protect the old book that she's going to bring me. And, you see, in that case... I'm just wrong in my impression. I'm wrong in my assumption. And my jealousy is misplaced. And that's why jealousy in humans is dangerous. Because we get it wrong pretty often. (laughs) We tend to be protective of our stuff and of people that belong to us. And I don't mean like in a slave way, but 
<laughs> but I mean, we belong to each other. Yeah, and I'm yours. <laughs> Can you play something for that? No. All right. But anyway. <laughs> oh. But <clears throat> I, I lost my place. What were, what were you talking about? But but we get it wrong pretty often. It, it's not wrong to be protective of stuff that, that that is ours. Or of people, for that matter, over whom we have an exclusive claim. By the way, that, that's pretty rare that you have an exclusive claim over someone. Okay? Um, don't, don't be laying claim to people you don't... Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, for <laughs> so 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 there have to there has to be some rules for jealousy to be appropriate. There needs to be two facts. So this is real simple. For jealousy to be appropriate, there needs to be two things that are true. Number one, the jealous one must have a valid claim of exclusivity. All right, you can't be jealous about something over which you have no valid claim. All right. You know, if you're friends with someone and you find out they're friends with someone else, <gasps> wait a minute, I thought you were my friend. <laughs> you're not allowed to be close friends with someone else. We're close, you know. Well, look, just because you only have one friend doesn't mean they need to only have one friend, you know. <laughs> I'm beginning to realize why you only have one friend, too, by the way. <laughs> but you're about to have zero, but... Okay, so, so number one, the, je- the jealous one has to have a valid claim of exclusivity. You know, marriage establishes a valid claim of exclusivity, for instance. Here's the second truth that, that needs to, the second thing that needs to be true. The object of jealousy must be at risk of being stolen for the jealousy to be appropriate. The object of jealousy must be at risk of being stolen. Paul did not get this wrong. He was he was the jealous one and he had a valid claim of exclusivity. Now, understand this and and Paul's clear about this. The claim that the claim that Paul has is not for himself. And he explains this clearly in verse 2. You see that? He says, For I am jealous over you with what? A godly jealousy. He says the jealousy he holds is a godly jealousy. Here's what that means. That means that he's concerned not for a claim that he personally holds on the people of Corinth, but for a claim that God holds over them. Paul saw himself as a matchmaker. And he saw Jesus as the groom. Paul had introduced the people of Corinth to Jesus. And not with the intention that they might add Jesus to their repertoire, but that they might make Jesus their everything. And as the matchmaker, Paul has a claim of exclusivity for God's sake. God isn't interested in being one of your gods. Jesus isn't interested in being just another Savior to you. He means to be your sole salvation and only God and Savior. Paul's fear that they be seduced away from Christ is expressed in verses 3 and 4 
Now, j- just so you know, if you're wondering, wow, this is a really long introduction and, and where, where are the points coming? We're going to go over time today. Um, well, that's likely, but um, <laughs> we, um, w- just so you know, we're going to walk through this passage together before we look for the specific direction that God has for us therein, and then we're going to quickly go over that. So keep your pens in your hand if you want to write the outline down, if that's important to you. See, <clears throat> see in verses 3 and 4 how Paul expresses the fears that he has, okay? He says, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For he that cometh, for if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if he receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. He reminded he reminds them that this is something the devil's been about from the beginning. That old serpent successfully deceived Eve. Alright? I mean if if you study history, you can learn from it. You go all the way back to the beginning of human history and you see right there in the garden, everything started going south when? When Eve succumbed to the temptation of the serpent. And, and the serpent did it with subtlety. He was very clever about it. And what Paul is saying is, is he could do that again. And he certainly wants to do so. Eve was not the last person the serpent deceived. It was the first human that the serpent deceived. Notice how Paul describes the relationship from which they might be deceived. He speaks of a uh, simplicity that is in Christ. How true this is. Our relationship with Christ is not complicated. Have you seen the, um, that status on Facebook? It's complicated. I just shake my head when I see that. Whatever. Um, but, <laughs> but I fear some Christians, if they were to post um, you know, their relationship status with Christ, they might say, it's complicated. Yeah, he's important to me. But come on, there's other important stuff too. Right? <laughs> It's not complicated. Our relationship with him is directly with him. There is, to, to address the apostles' specific concerns and the development of apostasy within the early church, there is no surrogate, there is no pontiff, there is no vicar through whom Christ would interact with us. That would get very complicated. Now, it might be alluring, as it would require less faith on our part, but that would be very complicated. Satan means to introduce complexity into a relationship with Jesus that should be very simple. He has many ways of doing this. Many false religions that claim to worship the same Jesus you worship. You know that? I mean, they put Jesus in great big bold print. And they'll tell you flat out, they're talking about the same Jesus that you know. 
Then they'll describe something about this Jesus of whom they speak that is not represented between these covers. Starting to make it a little complicated, you see. Some of these deceivers will travel from door to door trying to get you to believe that their Jesus is the same as yours. And they just happen to know a little bit more about him. Some will tell you that there was another book that was written besides the Bible that tells us more about Jesus. And that it was delivered to a man named Joseph Smith on the American continent. Some will tell you that Jesus is not who your Bible claims him to be. That he's not God, he's just a created being. They call themselves witnesses of Jehovah. But they reject the claims that Jesus made about himself and the clear and simple teaching that Jesus is Jehovah. Paul had a similar concern for the people of the church in Galatia. He saw that they were listening to people who were adding works to salvation and he challenged them to reject the false prophets who brought this teaching to them. As a matter of fact, Paul's entire letter to the Galatians revolves around the subjects of a works-based salvation, which is a removal from the simplicity that is in Christ. We read it in Galatians 1, beginning with verse 6. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. In other words, it's not really good news. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, as in Joseph Smith's case, Preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you. Let him be accursed. Nowadays, the false prophets for the nowadays the false prophets don't even have to knock on your door. They can simply post videos on the internet and lure in those who want more than the simple truth. The well-placed fear that Paul has for the people of Corinth is that they might fall for some of the well-spoken false prophets out there that intend to gain their loyalty and complicate their relationship that they have with Christ. In verse 5 now, Paul enters a portion of the passage in which he reminds them of the relationship that he has with them. This section goes on, I think, to like verse uh, 12. The point of this is to give his argument more weight, that he has their best interests at heart. And he begins in verse 5 by reminding them of his claim to authority. He's an apostle, like any of the other apostles. And he doesn't have any less authority than Peter. I mean, he is um, he's an apostle like all the apostles. Paul admits in verse 6 that his words are not always flowery, and they're not always easy to be heard. Let me tell you something. Sometimes he says, he says things that are hard to hear. He rebukes and he chastens. But he does so with knowledge and with complete transparency. 
sometimes the truth hurts us. Right? You know why that is? Because the truth doesn't change. And sometimes we need to. Paul points this out at the end of the verse. Um, in verse 6, as he says, but we have made through through but we have been truly made manifest among you in all things. He says, I may be rude in speech, but uh, I've been completely transparent. Then in verse 7, Paul addresses a unique aspect of his relationship with the Corinthian church. He had never taken a salary from them. This was unusual. And not really a pattern that the Apostle Paul is meaning to impress upon the church in general. And he constantly reinforces that. Paul speaks of it several times as having negative consequences even. And here he points out that it may have abased him in their minds. You see that in verse 7? He says, Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that you might be exalted because I preached to you the gospel of God freely? He's concerned that because he never asked for a wage from them while he was with them, that he might that they might think less of his authority or that they might value less the truth that he had taught them. Paul does insist here that he only did this for their own exaltation, to lift them up, but in doing so may have caused an offense by lowering his own profile below that which God had intended. And in verse 8, Paul reminds the people of how he was paid when he worked with them. He was actually supported by other churches. He explains this in even greater detail in verse 9. The churches in Macedonia supported Paul while he was working in Achaia. That's the area in which Corinth was. Okay, And he explains that he did not want to be a burden upon them. Perhaps they were... It, it, so, some people have different theories as to why Paul never took a paycheck from the, from the church in the city of Corinth. Because he did... He was supported by other churches. But from the city of Corinth, from the church meeting in the city of Corinth, he, he never took any money for his own ministry for himself. And, and uh, um, some people have different ideas of, as to why this is. Maybe they were financially challenged. You know, maybe they were poor. Maybe they were unable to do more for Paul. Perhaps they also, and this was a, a good theory, I think, that that they had a, a delicate history of religious charlatans from whom Paul wanted to separate himself by asking for nothing for himself. I mean, I certainly understand that motive. See all these televangelists out there with big diamond and gold rings on every finger out there telling you, just send in $10 and uh, God's going to bless you, I promise. You know, <laughs> Just support the ministry of Christ. Like, dude... You've got like a year's worth of salary on your left hand. <laughs> Maybe more. And um, so I certainly understand the motive of, motive of not wanting to identify with that. You know, It makes pastors all over the place afraid to even talk about money. 
All that said, Paul now stands accused by the false prophets of just being after the the money of the people in Corinth. There's irony in that, right? Paul says in verse 10 that he will continue to put forth the truth that he took nothing from that entire region while he was there. He says, I'm glad of, I'm glad of my decision, even though it might have had some negative impact. I, I'm glad in this that I never took any money from you. I never took any money from anyone in the region of Achaia, and I won't. He asks in, uh, in verse 11, if his selfless giving could be motivated by a lack of love for them. You know what that's called? Sarcasm. <laughs> right? Is what you think I you think I did that? I lived the way I lived among you and didn't take a single penny from you while I gave you everything I had. You think I did that because I don't love you? <laughs> I love sarcasm. It really gets the point across, doesn't it? And <laughs> so um, those last two words of verse eleven are the cry of many a misunderstood minister and brings great comfort to the apostle Paul. Finally, in verse 12, Paul resolves to continue to take nothing from the Corinthian church in the way of personal support. Because by maintaining that position, he's going to silence those who are accusing him and essentially show them to be what they claim he is. He lays out the clear and powerful claim in verse 13 that these men are false. They are deceitful. They are posers, pretending to positions of authority that they do not rightfully have. We tend to think that we would recognize falsehood when it comes, right? We think, oh yeah, no, I'll, I'll recognize it. Somebody says something wrong, Ooh, I'm on it. I, you're not going to fool me. Well... We think ourselves to be clever enough to discern the differences. What we fail to remember is that false doctrine almost always sounds good. And, and that first impulse that you have from the flesh, which is sometimes hard to recognize where that's coming from, is, oh, that's right. Oh, I, oh, yeah, I like that. I love the way that sounds. <laughs> right? False prophets almost always look like the real thing. Verse 14 reminds us that even the darkest and most evil being that ever existed presents himself as an angel of light. He says, And no marvel... For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. We shouldn't be surprised, as verse 15 indicates, that Satan's surrogates present themselves as ministers of righteousness. They use the same vocabulary. They claim the same things. They will speak cleverly. They will look polished. And they will sound good. But they will suffer the consequences of deceiving God's people. We see this in verse 15. Therefore it is no great thing 
if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. But how, how is their end? Whose end shall be according to their works. That is the summary of the text. Now we've got five minutes, six points. Ready for this? Let's see what God might command us to do with the information we've heard this morning. If there's an imperative in the text, it is a call to wariness. Beware of false prophets. To, To the extent that we can thereby derive an imperative for us, it is this. Every Christian must beware of false prophets. So, why must we beware of false prophets? We can point out just a a few things that are reflected in the text. Number one, and you can see it in verse two, because you are exclusively bound to Christ and the gospel. You understand that? When you uh, accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and by that I mean when you placed your faith in Him as the only way to have a relationship with God. When you received by faith the righteousness that He offered, then you entered into an exclusive relationship. As a matter of fact, the one most exclusive relationship on this earth of which we automatically think when when you use that term, marriage. God designed as a picture of the exclusivity of the relationship that we are to have with Jesus Christ. That's why it's that's why it's so important that we honor the picture of marriage and understand it the way the Bible teaches it because it represents our exclusivity in our relationship with Jesus. We cannot embrace as acceptable other religions. Sorry. We're not allowed to be tolerant of them. Okay? We're not allowed to say, other, you know, there, there's other ways to God. You know why that is? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. He made a claim of exclusivity. So then to be a Christian means to be exclusive to Christ. It is not unloving to seek to share a relationship with Christ with those who believe something else. Aren't you glad someone shared Him with you? Don't let people tell you that is unloving. It's the most loving thing you can do. But why must we beware of false prophets? Because you are exclusively bound to Christ and to the gospel. The next thing we see, if you look at verse 3, also in verse 14 and verse 15, what we read was some record of the devil's habits. And we learned something about him. Satan is a subtle deceiver. I do wish that every false prophecy that came, I don't know, across the internet or in print, 
would have like a little red devil <laughs> seal on it, you know? Kind of like they make people the, the grocery stores do about what's inside the can. It just ought to be, you know, if it's false, if it's against Scripture, then they ought to have to stamp it with a little red devil or something. That way you can just look at it and go, ah, no, nope, not going with that one, right? <laughs> but see, here's the thing. He's smarter than that, right? He, he knows you're not going to fall for that. You know what he's going to do? He's going to say something that sounds good to your ears. You know, he's going to, he's going to market himself to you. You've got to understand this. There are some smart people in this room. Like three of them. I look forward to meeting all three of you. No, just kidding. There are smart people in this room. I mean, I, I recognize discernment regularly within our congregation. But let me tell you something. There's no one here that knows as much as the devil knows. Okay? He's a very powerful being. And his special skill is deception. So we've got to have some special power to resist it. Why must we beware of false prophets and not treat them as if, ah, no big deal, right? It's because, number one, you're exclusively bound to Christ. And God forbid we should end up um, unfaithful in that relationship. Number two, Satan is a subtle deceiver. And I'm not going to pretend like I'm smarter than he is. I need to beware. I need to look out for it. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever been tricked by another human? I'd raise both hands, but my left one's the only one that goes up well. <laughs> right? <laughs> Think about that. You've been tricked by another human? Do you think maybe the devil might be able to trick you too? (laughs) He's really smart about this. He is a subtle deceiver. He presents himself as an angel of light. Here's the third reason why we must beware of false prophets. And it is because we are naturally susceptible. What the Apostle Paul is saying in verse 4, he's saying to the Corinthian church, he's worried that you might well bear with someone who's telling you, teaching you false doctrine. The fact is, we all have a sinful nature. We all like to hear certain things. The devil knows what you like to hear, right? And so that's what he's going to dress up his false doctrine in. Exactly what you like to hear. We're susceptible. We're easy targets. So you know what that means we need to be? Weary. We need to be wary. So how can we do that? Seems hopeless, right? (laughs) Here's... A couple things I'd like to point out. How can we beware of false prophets? I see this. um, I actually rewrote these these last three points a couple of times. The first thing I said was be skeptical. And each point started with be skeptical. You're going to find a 
uh, have a hard time finding be skeptical in Scripture. So, um, <laughs> but we understand that being wary, and the Bible does tell us to beware, is to some extent being skeptical of what you hear, right? To use uh, John's words, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. This is a theme we see throughout all of the New Testament, that there were already false doctrines and false religions that were putting themselves forward, even naming Christ and saying they were followers of Christ. And every one of the apostles warns against this. In 1 John 4, 1, he tells us to try the spirits. You know what that means? Put them to the test. Okay? So, that's why every one of these practical steps is going to start with the word test. The first thing is test new teaching. You see in verse 4, what Paul says is, I'm afraid that you're going to um, accept a Jesus that is different than the one that we preached. I'm afraid you're going to receive another spirit which is not the one you received. I'm afraid you're going to um, receive another gospel which prior to this you had not accepted. You know what's uh, consistent with all three of these things? They're new teaching. They're... They sound new and fresh, maybe even refreshing. (laughs) But guess what? They're false. So anytime you hear something new, now I'm not, see the the thing is, is sometimes you hear something new and you know why it sounds new? Because you haven't learned it yet. Okay, so, so that's okay. Not everything that is new to you is false teaching. But if it's new to you, test it. Don't swallow it. (laughs) Right? Test it. Even if it comes from me. The way my brain is, no telling what I might say up here. Your response... I should never say that from the pulpit. (laughs) But you have a responsibility, though. I'm not putting myself um, above uh, uh, all men as being completely unquestionable. God knows I'm not. You have this responsibility. Every Christian has this responsibility to beware. That means when you hear something new, test it. Test it against this book. People love to use new terms. Act like they're a thing. And then build entire doctrines off of them. Out of one passage ripped out of context or something. Can I tell you something? If it's new, go see if you can find it. Don't believe, don't believe them just because they said they found it. Or that they say authoritatively, oh, this always means this. Right? Forget that. You go find it. If you can't find it, with the Holy Spirit inside of you, it's not there. <laughs> so test new teaching. Every time you hear something new, test it. Test teachers who are preoccupied with wealth. Cholstein. What? That's it. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> I have this allergy. 
you look at verses 5 through 12, and, and you know what the Apostle Paul's uh, main import of this passage is defending himself because these these false prophets are actually after that are actually actually after power and after the money of the Corinthian church. And so they try to distract by acting like the apostle Paul's the one that's after the money, right? And so their sermons probably sounded something like don't worry about money. I mean, look how God's blessed me. I mean, oh Living like this will make you rich. If you give to me, you'll be rich too. Makes perfect sense. But <laughs> Test teachers who are preoccupied with wealth. Can I tell you something? It's not a sin to be rich. But, but let me say this. And, and I'll even go as far as to say this, that... A minister of God must, as part of the requirements that are listed in the, in the pastoral epistles, must be responsible with his finances and take care of his family. All right? So, um, he, he must be responsible with his finances and take care of his family, or the Bible says he's worse than an infidel. All right? So, um, if a minister of God is financially stable, that's a good sign. All right? Not a bad sign. It means he's got his priorities right at least. But if a minister of God is richer than everyone in town, you got to wonder what's up with that guy. You got to ask what are your goals in life? Because I don't think it's a bad goal for someone um, of a secular vocation to be a millionaire. Go for it and tithe. You know what I'm saying? Contribute to God's work. God, God uses rich people too. There's quite a few of them in Scripture God used powerfully. And rich, rich widows even we see supporting the Apostle Paul's ministry. You don't see an awful lot of rich ministers, though. You know why that is? They have other priorities. You know, just be wary. So, how can you beware of false prophets? Test those teachers that are preoccupied with wealth. They have an island. You know, just, just consider that. You know? Okay. Penny hen. Okay. Last, last point. <laughs> Test critics of proven teachers. You know, that's something the Apostle Paul was trying to say when he has tried to establish his own apostolic authority. You know why he was doing that? Saying, look, I, 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 I have proven myself to you. I didn't take anything from you. I was completely transparent. Remember, I'm the one that introduced you to Christ. And these guys, they're attacking me. I haven't attacked them. They're attacking me. You know what we learn from this? That one way you can beware of false prophets is that they tend to be critics of proven teachers. 
And maybe not even specifically, but just in general. They'll just constantly say, well, you know, back in the past, churches used to be so uh, stringent, so into holiness. Now I think that God just loves everyone and that we should all just not worry about all that stuff. Can I tell you something? They're being critical of the history of Christianity. (laughs) They're being critical of proven teachers. And the Apostle Paul sets himself forward as a proven teacher. Now, we learn a lot about false prophets, about these supposed angels of light, if you will, from this passage. But one thing that comes in loud and clear is that the gospel's the same everywhere. That people are sinners. That Jesus is the only Savior. The only one. The only one offered. God did not make this complicated. He made it very simple. And Jesus has offered himself to everyone as their Savior. Think about this. Make a personal application. Have you personally received that offer? If perhaps you thought there was something else in conjunction with Jesus that might get you into a relationship with God, think again. Take Jesus at his offer and accept him as your only Savior. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation and... It is, once again, I surrender all. Go ahead and stand as we sing the first stanza of All to Jesus, I surrender all to him, I freely give. If you'd like to uh, make a decision to accept Christ as your Savior, accept his offer of salvation that he's put forward, then just come sit in the front row while we sing that first stanza, and I'll show you from my Bible how you can do that today and be born into God's family. Children of God, Surrender your all to him and beware of false prophets because, like the Bible constantly warns us, they're out there. On that first stanza, all to Jesus. All to Jesus I surrender all to him I freely give Father, thank you for the clear warning. Help us, Lord, to have discernment, to be wary of false prophets and learn to recognize them so that we might point people towards you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for being here. You're dismissed.